Let's look to the Lord before we look to his word now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the blessing of opening what is your word, not ours. I pray that you would help us to be able to see exactly what it is that you would have for us now. Help us to grow in our faith. Help us to fight those factors that would lead us to a slippage in that faith, that would lead us in the direction of unbelief. And for some who are sitting there right now in unbelief, I pray that that unbelief would change to faith, recognizing the verse of the month that we are all sinners and we all fall short of your glory and we're all in need of a Savior if we haven't taken advantage of his great offer of forgiveness now. So thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we're thinking in terms of three kinds of unbelief. Let's read about it together, and I'd like to invite you to stand, if you will, please, as we read God's words. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 23. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 23. You may notice we're picking up where we left off in our study of Matthew. Um, maybe if the millennium and the rapture don't come before, we'll have a chance to finish Matthew. The he that is referred to in this first verse we're going to read is, of course, the Lord Jesus. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Please have a seat. Earlier in this chapter, in Matthew chapter 17, we saw this some months ago. Peter, James, and John had a wonderful experience with the Lord Jesus when they went up onto the mountaintop. They saw Jesus transfigured before their very eyes. Picture this. Feel like you're there with them and imagine what it must have been like. Jesus' face shone like the sun when he was transfigured. They even got to see Elijah and Moses appear and talk with Jesus. And they heard a voice from a cloud, obviously the voice of God the Father, say that this is my son in whom I love. He should be listened to. I am well pleased with him. It's safe to say that they had a mountaintop experience together. What's the trouble with mountaintop experiences? Pretty soon you have to come down off the mountain and then the real world is there waiting for you again. Our duty this morning is to look at three kinds of unbelief and exorcise that's not exercise, exorcise all of these unbeliefs 
We want to get rid of them as completely as Jesus exercised the demon in the boy in our story. Let me ask you this question. Do you have any unbelief knocking at your door right now? Perhaps some unbelief that's gotten in the door. Stay tuned. You may think no, but the Scriptures may indicate to us that we've got to be very, very cautious because it could very well be with us. We're looking at three kinds of unbelief. The first of them is collective unbelief, as I refer to it. Coming down off the mountain, it must have been a pathetic sight that Jesus and his three disciples saw. The rest of the disciples were in the middle of failure. They were surrounded by a large crowd. And according to Mark's account, the teachers of the law were arguing with these other nine disciples. Now, they were even perhaps doing more than arguing with them. A lot of the commentators and writers and Bible teachers think that they were ridiculing the disciples because they couldn't cast out the demon. Even some of the Pharisees and some others were able to cast out demons occasionally when they were using their formulas and doing all those things that were known to them to do. We don't know exactly what that argument was about, but we do know this, that it concerned the disciples' failure to cast a demon out of a boy. Mark also tells us that as soon as the people saw Jesus, they were greatly amazed. The NIV says they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran up and they greeted the Lord Jesus. Some speculate that the reason they were so attracted to what was going on was because there was some kind of an afterglow on Jesus after the transfiguration. Remember when Moses was in the area of the tabernacle, when, when the Lord God was there and his face shone, they're thinking maybe there was something like that. Uh, to me, it's doubtful because Jesus told the disciples, don't tell anybody about this. So he wasn't likely going to go and appear before the people and have on his face a question that demanded being asked, what's, what's going on with all of that? So Jesus was there, transfigured before them, but he came down with the disciples. The crowd ran to see him, and according to the original language, there's an action that's going on in the verb there. They continued to do this for a while. They didn't just react and stop, but they were reacting for a long time afterwards. Jesus was a celebrity to them by this time. He would continue to be that. He was the talk of the town. I'm going to go back and forth between Matthew and Mark and Luke because um, the story is told very greatly by all three of them and there are details that we want to see from all of them. But Jesus asked a question in Mark chapter 9 verse 16 of these nine disciples and the question was, what are you arguing about with them? What's the cause for all of this ruckus that is going on at this particular time? Of course Jesus already knew. He wanted them to articulate it. But none of the disciples or the teachers of the law answered that question. I don't know if you noticed that in the reading. None of them did. But a man from the crowd answered. He had brought, Luke tells us, his only son. And there's something in this. Here is this man. Please feel for this man. We're going to build a case to feel very, very greatly for him. This was his only son. He had brought him, Luke says, to Jesus to have him healed. The man told Jesus about his son. Notice his posture. He knelt before Jesus. 
Now, this is a compilation, again, of those three accounts, but there was no question the boy needed mercy. According to the ESV, he was an epileptic, and that word means that he was having seizures. The word literally means to be moonstruck or crazy. It's often translated lunatic. You know where we get the word lunatic? It has to do with moon or moonstruck. We get our word lunar from that. So this boy not only was suffering from some of the things that were mentioned, but probably a lot of ridicule too because people thought he was crazy And uh, in addition to everything else that was going on. He was possessed by a spirit, a demon, which we're told kind of matter-of-factly by Matthew. It robbed him of his speech, and we read elsewhere also of his hearing. It would seize him and throw him to the ground. Oftentimes, he fell into the water or, or fire. Now, catch the word often. This wasn't, again, a once and done. Many times. Now, here's this father watching this go on. His only son. And no doubt, his greatly loved son. Constantly being thrown to the ground and into fire and into water. The, the danger of drowning or being burned alive. And Jesus asked a question in another account, and Jesus said to him, how long has this been going on? And the man said, from childhood. Now, we don't know how old this son was now, but he was older than a child uh, because from childhood this had been going on. So here is a man who is greatly desiring some help. Some help for his son who is in constant, constant agony of soul and body. The man had brought his son to see Jesus. That's Mark's account that tells us that, but Jesus was not there. So he, he came wanting to see Jesus. Jesus wasn't there, so he thought the nine disciples would do. They should have, shouldn't they? The nine disciples should have been enough. They were authorized by Jesus to cast out demons. In Mark chapter 6, verse 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. They should have been able to do this. They were authorized by Jesus to do this. They were experienced in doing it. Mark chapter 6, verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So here we have the authorization from Jesus to do this, the experience that they had been doing it. But the disciples could not heal this one particular son. Jesus' response to that comment in verse 17 shows us why I call this the collective unbelief. Here's what Jesus said in verse 17. O oh, faithless, the NIV says unbelieving, O oh, unbelieving and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The NIV puts it this way more colloquially. How long do I have to put up with you? Bring him here to me. Of whom was Jesus referring when he called them a faithless and twisted generation? He was at least referring to those nine disciples. They had just failed in a big way. But he's referring to a whole generation here. His indictment must have included the people in the large crowd as well as the teachers of the law who were involved in arguing and perhaps ridiculing the nine disciples. 
All of the people there were involved in the rebuke in one way or another. This was truly collective unbelief. The word faithless that is used here comes from a Greek word, diastrepho. It means to twist or to bend out of shape. So there Jesus is looking at a whole generation of people who were twisted out of shape. Jesus was speaking to the spiritual perversion that is inevitable in those people who are unbelieving. But do you notice who they were? They were people who should have been believing. They were people who were following after Jesus. Nine of them giving their lives to it. Others following Jesus because they wanted to see what he was going to do next. And others who were supposed to be leaders of the religious parts of the people. They were all there and Jesus called them faithless and twisted generation. What specific problems did Jesus have with the crowd and the teachers and the disciples? Well, the crowds followed Jesus because they were seeking some thrills or some entertainment or some healing. Jesus created gaper delays wherever he went by this time in his ministry. The gloating Jewish leaders followed him in order to convict him of a capital crime. They were waiting for him to slip up. Even the disciples, who should have by this time known that he was the Messiah and from time to time had glimpses of that, Peter acknowledged it shortly before this, but they were confused about his teaching and his work. In fact, look ahead at the chapter, the last two verses that I read earlier in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And so the disciples cheered and yelled and hollered, celebrated that moment. You're going to rise from the dead. Who's ever done that? Is that what it says? No, that's the uh, reversed version doesn't say that at all. In fact, it says, and they were greatly distressed. Uh, there's some unbelief that needs to be worked on even among those who are the most godly people. The collective unbelief of the crowd can sometimes cause a genuine faith in an individual to waver. Maybe there's some here who are part of the crowd that emotes over Jesus. When there's a gathering, they'll be there. But they don't really want to know more about Him. They don't want Him more. They don't want more of Him. They just want to be amongst the crowd. And so they come. And especially during a holiday, they'll be there. Collective unbelief is powerful and pervasive. Collective unbelief is all about peer pressure, letting the world shape you, fitting in with the people who are around about me. Do you know that Christians, you do know this, Christians today are systematically being beaten down everywhere you look. Why? Because we believe what the Bible teaches and put it into practice and don't necessarily take what the world is saying as the gospel truth, but what God says as the gospel truth. And so Christians can collectively be beaten down in such a way that the crowd can shape unbelief in one of us. It can be in your school where you work. It can be in your family gatherings. It can be anywhere. What do we do? Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I love Philip's translation. You've heard me use this many times. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold because there is collective unbelief that is going on in that world around us. I love what Daniel did. Remember what happened with Daniel and his three friends? They were taken to Babylon, and the king of Babylon decided he was going to take some of these individuals, and he was going to make them into exactly what he wanted them to be. So he did everything he could to Babylonize. That's not really a word, but to Babylonize these three. It's even hard to say, these three individuals. He brainwashed them with Babylonian literature, with their language they had to learn, with what they ate, what they drank, everything that the king did they had to do. They received a formal education to be trained exactly as the king wanted them. They even got new names. Let's get rid of these Hebrew names. They've got the name of God in the middle of those names. Let's give them new names. And in the middle of those names, we'll have Babylonian deities. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. That's what all of us have to do. We've got to resolve that we are not going to let the world around us squeeze us into its mold because the world around us is guilty of collective unbelief and it is so easy for the crowd to get the one. And you may be that one wherever you might be. There's a second kind of belief that is here, and I like to refer to this as wavering unbelief. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark for uh, this. Mark chapter 9, I'm going to read verses 20 through 27. This part is not included in its entirety in Matthew's account. But a wavering unbelief. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Now again, picture you're there, you're watching this. Or even worse, picture you're the father, and this is your son that this is happening to. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. So the father of this boy came to the Lord Jesus after the disciples couldn't do anything to help him. Did he have faith? He had faith, didn't he? He would have never come to Jesus. And he would have never come to Jesus and knelt down in front of him acknowledging somehow there is greatness here that is greater than I am. 
He'd been through a tough ordeal for years and years at this point. You know something that's interesting? It's kind of a little bit of a side note. It's interesting to note that when Satan has control of an individual, what does he try to do with that individual? He tries to destroy that individual. Do you know what's happening in our world today? You see the destruction of Satan with regard to drugs and other types of things that are going on that are destructive. He loves that. There's a relationship between the occult and the word pharmacia um, in, the, in the Hebrew, actually it is in the Old Testament, a relationship between satanic activity and the use of addictive drugs. Satan tries to destroy. Are there any of you here right now that are in any way dabbling in that? Please understand, there's a power of evil that would destroy you through that. But there's a Savior who would save you through that as well. And that's what we need to be sure that everyone understands. Tough ordeal. And he says to Jesus now, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. That word if is a strange word coming from somebody who has some kind of a belief. Had the disciples' lack of help weakened the man's faith? It seems like it. There was a doubt now. If... If the followers can't do anything about it, the master is now suspect. Do you understand that that happens? That happens when we who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and named as Christians and known to belong to Him, when we fail, it reflects on Him. Have you ever heard anybody say, I don't want to follow Christ because... All the Christians I know are hypocrites. Isn't that a terrible thing? But it happens over and over and over again. When our unbelief is present, it reflects on our Maker. It reflects on the Lord Jesus. Jesus turned the if around to the Father in verse 23. He says, if you can. In other words, Jesus was kind of astounded that He would say if. Understanding who Jesus was. But he turned that whole if around. Certainly Jesus could heal the boy, but the father needed to know that everything is possible for him who believes. His father, the father's words in verse 24 are very helpful for us today. Great words in Scripture. I believe, help my unbelief. Yes, he believed, but there was a part of him that was wavering, and some of that may have been because it was collective unbelief that was affecting him he was honest he was not guilty of unbelief he was guilty of having some doubts he was guilty of wavering a little bit he was caught being human but he asked Jesus to help him just the way he was and that's what Jesus does the man needed faith he didn't need perfect faith he needed an imperfect faith in a perfect savior there was a woman who was known for her deep trust and her calmness of soul. She was asked by a person who wanted to hear her secret. Are you the woman with the great faith? No, she replied. I am the woman with the little faith in the great God. And isn't that the way every one of us should be? We're little people with a great faith in a great God. 
Faith is only as valid as its object. You understand this. You could have tremendous faith in very thin ice and still drown. Or you could have little faith in very thick ice and be perfectly secure. What's important is the object of the faith. Very interesting that it appears in, as as we're looking at verse 25, still in Mark's account, it appears Jesus tried to beat the crowd by performing the miracles before too many of them arrived. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, uh, then he gets to work immediately and rebukes the spirit. Oftentimes this was the case. Jesus never encouraged idle sightseers. At times, the Lord Jesus would deliberately avoid crowds when he realized their motives were wrong. And please understand this because there is a lot of the opposite of this going on today. The measure of success was the few who followed when the crowds had turned back. To understand that principle? The measure of success was the few who followed when the crowds had turned back. It's not all about numbers. It's about those who decide they really want to follow the Lord Jesus. There's a third kind of unbelief in front of us. And this is a tough one for us as believers because we want to say, I believe firmly, my belief is so solid, but there were nine people who would have said the same thing and who would have been wrong. I call this presumptuous unbelief. We're back in Matthew now and we're looking at verses 18 through 20. Presumptuous unbelief. We're back to the disciples. To their credit, they wanted to learn from their failure. Verse 19 tells us that. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And that's a good question. Because they had done it before. They had done it when Jesus was not with them before. Why this time of failure? Jesus told them, according to Mark's account, that this kind can only come out by prayer. Remember again verse 20? He replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Do you think they had faith as small as a mustard seed? I would think they did. So what's going on here? What's the problem? Well, their faith was little because it was not exercised. They didn't exercise their faith. You know why? They didn't pray. They didn't bring Jesus into this. Apparently, they had taken for granted the power given them or had come to believe that it was inherent now in themselves. So they no longer depended prayerfully on God for it. And their failure showed their lack of prayer. And that's why I call it presumptuous unbelief. Presumptuous in that I don't need any outside help. I can handle this. One of the expositors, a man by the name of Lane, says this, the disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift they had received from Jesus was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. This attitude springs from a subtle form of unbelief. When one has success, it encourages trust in oneself and one's techniques rather than in God. 
They had been doing the same thing long enough. They thought they can do it. They don't need any help. They didn't even think to pray because Jesus said this can only come out by prayer. Obviously, they hadn't prayed. They needed to have faith. Faith was demonstrated by prayer. They needed a dependence on the Lord, not on themselves or on their experience or on a formula or on a ritualistic rite. It wasn't say the magic words and this will happen. That's what they were thinking. The disciples failed because they didn't realize they had no sufficiency in themselves. Again, presumptuous unbelief. It's a practical unbelief. They had belief in their heads, but they simply weren't living it. Jesus' emphasis here was clearly on prayer, as it is all through the Scriptures. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. But when that prayer is not there, that's a subtle form of unbelief. How many of you have heard this name before? George Mueller? Oftentimes considered a man of faith, a man whose belief was right there where it should be. During one point of his ministry, in the 19th century, George Mueller began to pray for five personal friends. It was not until five years later that the first one of them came to Christ. After five more years, two more of them became Christians. And after 25 years, the fourth man was saved. He prayed for the fifth and final friend until the time of his own death, a few months after which his last friend came to salvation. For that friend, George Mueller had prayed more than 50 years. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And that prayer should never, ever stop. A couple of closing comments for us to think carefully about. One, prayer changes presumptuous unbelief to belief. Maybe you've been doing the same thing for so long that now you're just going through the motions. Now you're doing it because you're used to doing it. It's expected of you. People think you should keep singing because you've been singing. You enjoy music, but you've lost the real reason behind it. And you've lost the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit to give you the message. Not to stand up there and go through motions that you're used to. Uh, maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's uh, any number of things where your gifts are no longer the Holy Spirit's gifts, but they're something that you've mechanically achieved. Now notice again in those last couple of verses in Matthew 17 or in our reading in verse 22 and 23 Jesus told them that he was going to be delivered into the hands of men they would kill him be raised again the third day and they were greatly distressed. There again is a form of unbelief. They had a ways to go in their spiritual progress. But remember this last lesson. Lack of prayer is disguised unbelief. Now some of you earlier when I said, do you have any unbelief going on in you? How's your prayer life? Seriously, how's your prayer life? Because a lack of prayer is disguised unbelief. 
And what we want instead is the real thing, the real faith, the real faith that is totally dependent on God because that's where our sufficiency is. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this lesson, which seems like a very simple lesson in the power of Jesus to cast out a demon. But when we look at the context and the other verses around, we realize that it's all about unbelief. Help us in our unbelief. We do believe, but help us as we grow in our faith to depend on You. Not on ourselves, not on our techniques, not on our methods, not on what we're familiar with, not on our routine, but on You and nothing else. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.